Welcome to the Kixology Podcast, a show all about running shoes. My name is Brian Metzler, your host and resident running shoe geek. I'm also the author of Kixology, a book about the hype, science, culture, and cool of running shoes. In this episode, I'm joined by Jared Ward, a 2016 Olympic marathoner and professional runner for Saucony, as well as Dr. Ian Hunter, a professor of exercise science at Brigham Young University, who has studied the intricacies of the human gait. In this episode, we talk about the advent of super shoes, those crazy marathon racing shoes with carbon fiber plates embedded in squishy foam midsoles, and how they've impacted how we run, as well as how they've impacted the world of competitive racing. Ward and Hunter offer unique insights about the subject from their own points of view, but they also contribute ideas from studies they've done at BYU. Thanks for tuning in. Sit back and enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Good to be here. Yeah, this is going to be really fun. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, it's great. It's great to have two guys that are so immersed in uh, in modern footwear to, to talk about uh, kind of where we are with, with running shoes. And uh, uh, let's get right into it. Uh, um, I know you guys have uh, taken a look at some of the modern running shoes. I know, uh, obviously, uh, Jared, you're a Saucony athlete, and that was kind of part of it. But let's, let's start with that background of how you guys got started into looking at some of these modern uh, running shoes and kind of how the impact of both the foams and the plates have, uh, have, have made an input on how runners move and how runners run. I think I'll let you start on that, Doc. Okay. Uh, so I got interested in the technology of the shoes uh, and kind of changed the research direction that I had. I'd been focused mostly on the mechanics of running and how that related to performance. And then the Nike Vaporfly came out and everyone got so excited about it. And I thought, there's no way a shoe change could make 4% difference in metabolic cost. So I talk about it on runs with Jared and others and eventually got uh, a study going where we investigated it and found around 3% of a benefit. And then with Jared's help, was able to get some shoes from Saucony and just keep that research going. And I think that, you know those, those initial shoes came out in the 2016, 2017 uh, timeframe, which uh, I know, Jared, you, you've been a Saucony athlete for a while, but uh, that was a time when you ran Olympic trials and ran really well. I think you ran 213 at trials and qualified for the U.S. team and then ran really well in Rio and uh, sixth place in Rio and, um, and 211. Uh, but at the time, I don't think you were wearing uh, these in easy advanced super, super shoes. I guess talk about that and kind of the evolution as an athlete um, point of view, seeing some of these new shoes and technologies come out and kind of what your kind of feeling was relative to your performances. Well, at the time, I didn't know that there was any type of other, you know, product, you know, shoe that was making significant, um, significant benefit benefits to energy costs for runners. And, and, and frankly, I don't know that anyone was super aware of what people were wearing on their feet. I mean, we'd been, I feel like the, the running shoe industry for decades had been on a quest to make lighter shoes. And, you know, we know, uh, through a number of studies, you know, exactly what type of benefits we're getting when we put a lighter shoe on somebody's foot. And, but other than weight and, you know, for the most part, everyone had access to the same shoes, you know, in a, in a same class of weight. Um, there just wasn't, 
that much to be talked about in terms of shoes. You know, you, you can talk about what color you're wearing or, um, you know, what, what brand that you've grown up with and what brand you like and things like that. But this, um, but you know, this uh, new shoe really turned the shoe industry on its side. And it, it wasn't until, you know, much after the Olympics that I, um, begin to understand that people were wearing these new shoes that, uh, that Nike had come out with. And then, you know, much like doc, it wasn't until after we had really done the research, um, and, and, uh, redone at least a version of the study they'd done in Colorado on those shoes that I started to really believe that shoes were making a difference. And then it was, you know, a month or two after that, that Saucony had a prototype on my door. And uh, Doc and I, you know, started on on the Saucony prototypes as well as other research on different aspects of these shoes, the, the plates and the foam and things like that. And and it's it's become a huge talking point in sport. I think, you know, when you talk about what's different between sport now and five years ago, it's that five years ago, um, people were talking about shoes in terms of how long they could last and in terms of how much they weighed. And, um, you know, there was a little bit of discussion on, okay, what shoes are running records and world records and things like that. But no, no athlete, you know, was on the starting line looking around at what shoes the other athletes is wearing or are wearing. And, and now everybody is, everybody's curious to know what the latest, um, shoes are that the, the different companies are innovating. And, and, uh, so it's been a very fun time to be a part of the Saucony team. You know, they really have a, a an impressive R and D team and it's been fun to be, um, able to work closely with Doc and uh, the labs here at, at BYU as we are kind of able to be a part of the revolution. And you made a good point. I mean, obviously, uh, even through 2016, no one really knew what anyone was wearing. I think that um, if you recall, Nike actually somewhat secretly brought out their their specialized shoes at the 2016 LA uh, Olympic Trials Marathon. And no one really kind of understood what was going on until they actually did that promotional sub two campaign with Kipchoge, obviously, and, and kind of explain what they were. Um, prior to that, as you said, yeah, there was a movement to have um, lighter shoes. Certainly the minimalist revolution of 10 years ago uh, led to shoes and materials being lighter, which was great. Um, I think we saw some new foams come out just after that. I think the Adidas Boost foam was one of the first foams in 2013. And we saw more new foams come out that were both cushioning oriented and very resilient. Um, but obviously the plates made a big difference. And quickly, as you said, after Nike came out with theirs, obviously every other brand, including Saucony, um, you know, had a, had a, uh, a, both a specialized foam, um, and a design for a plate, um, a carbon fiber plate to interact with that. And we'll talk about how those interact in a second, but I know that at Saucony, uh, Spencer White was a big part of that program, obviously. And, and Jared, I know you were roped in, uh, quite, a, quite early with, uh, with the rest of the Saucony athletes. I remember seeing, some of the Saucony athletes around Boulder, you know, years ago before, um, before it was really announced and running these, these green and black prototypes. And that, you know, obviously that was pretty exciting. And, and I'll, you know, right away, the results were being proven, um, with its prototype plate. So I guess obviously as an athlete, you know, there's been, there was talk for years, Oh, is it mechanical doping? Um, or is it the next evolution of shoes? And I guess from your point of view, obviously, um, since, since you got into the Saucony models, which are now out as the, uh, the Endorphin Pro, obviously, um, it seems the technology works, obviously, and it is a seems to be more of a fair field now. Now that the World Athletics has sanctioned them. Yeah, and I think there's a few things to be considering when you know when 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 we're using words like mechanical doping. Um, the the concern is that the athletes competing against each other 
um, all the way up through through high school and college, all the way to the world stage, is that it's on somewhat of a level playing field, and um, and that is a valid concern. And I think World Athletics did the right thing by by stepping in and providing some regulations and at least kind of um, creating some framework. But you don't want to you don't want to curb innovation. Much like we have, you know, we have drugs uh, that are banned from performance. We also have, you know, discoveries such as, you know, vitamins and supplemental iron and things like that that are helping runners run faster, but it's also helping runners stay healthier. And I think one um, positive externality of these new shoes is that my running career is going to last longer. The, the, you know, it, and I think anyone who's run in, in any class of these shoes, whether it's the Saucony Endorphin Pro or other, um, you know, the consensus is after a hard effort or a hard marathon, your legs just don't feel quite as beat up as they used to when we were wearing more minimalist shoes. And I, I really feel that I'm going to be able to run competitively for years longer because my body is more protected in the race. Now we built these shoes to make people faster, but that's been a positive side effect of the innovation built around performance. And I think as we continue to push the boundaries of nutrition um, and you know try to make healthy, sustainable shifts to lifestyle and to training that are also going to translate to better performance. I think that, you know, that's the job of the shoe industry is to put people in a shoe that's going to help them run faster and it's going to help them run longer and be healthier and live longer lives. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I remember talking to some of the first uh, Nike people that, that ran some of the shoes and that was one of the first things. I remember Shalane Flanagan saying that, you know, they were prototyping these shoes and uh, they go out for like a, an hour run, two hour runs. And then you come back and normally, you know, we know as runners, we get pretty beat up from the roads, obviously. And, you know, she was one of the first people to say that, yeah, these, these shoes have a great recovery um, aspect to them. And I guess, Dr. Hunter, I'll ask you that. You've you studied, you know, running gait for years. Um, I guess talk about how runners are running in these shoes with these foams and, and plates and this kind of this kind of um, design paradigm. Um, I guess from the point of view, obviously what Jared just said, obviously the recovery aspect, but also maybe take us through how a runner moves um, through these uh, through the gait cycle in these shoes. It changes a little bit. There's not major differences in the movements and so on. It's still considered running. It's a shoe is still a shoe, but we have been able to observe from our lab and some others where there's a lower peak force on the body just by a small amount, anywhere from one to 4% is typical. And that's just due to the added cushioning, I think. They're on the ground for just a fraction of a second longer. The stride length is typically one or 2% longer uh, when running at the same speed. And then the metabolic cost does drop anywhere. We've seen anywhere from zero to about 6%. Some people, it doesn't seem to benefit. Others, it, it's greater than that 4% when we're in these new style of shoes. So the, the mechanics of running are different but we're talking in the order of one or 2% for the most part of, of characteristics that we measure. Sure. But, but, but even that one or 2% can make a difference, obviously, if you're talking about a, um, a marathon, a half marathon. And, and I know now we're seeing some of these <clears throat> track spikes that have obviously some of these characteristics. So obviously one or 2%, even though is small um, compared to it's your four to five, six percent. Sure. 
Yeah, it's, it's yeah it does mean something. And if we look at the energy costs being, let's say, 4% lower energy, a shoe and a person that it works well on, then we're looking at somewhere under 2%, one point something percent faster running, which is meaningful. That's where I think that mechanical doping idea comes in. But you look at sport in general through the decades, tennis rackets, um, rock climbing footwear, running shoes even, you think of comparing, how do we compare Jesse Owens to Usain Bolt and so on? Uh, we, we cannot really, because technology has changed over the decades and that's the situation we're in. So I, I don't see it so much as mechanical doping, especially at this point when everybody can get this type of shoe through uh, various companies now and the rules are in place to keep it so it is still a running shoe and not some other kind of mechanism and the people are still moving as runners so i i'm i'm for the innovation to continue within the standards the rules have set yeah and you bring up a good historical point about other sports certainly other sports have had uh, innovations that have made breakthroughs in the sport uh obviously the big oversized tennis rackets made out of carbon fiber instead of wood, um, you know, uh, big wide skis for powder skiing, a lot of those things. We know, we know that obviously in the 2000 Olympics, the speedo speed suits were eventually banned. And I, and that's, uh, that's kind of an outlier because it seems like most innovation has been accepted by sport um, throughout the years. And you mentioned Jesse Owens who ran out of cinder track, obviously, and to the modern times where you have obviously all weather um, high rebound tracks. That's you cannot possibly compare um, over era, as you said, I guess one thing um, you touched on, you said runners are still running as runners. There's minor changes in, in their gait style, um, one or 2%. I guess one of the big questions, one of the big concerns is that uh, these shoes are putting more energy into a runner's stride, which I don't think is true. I think it's more that it's capturing or maybe um, returning more energy. Uh, but I'd, lo- I'd love to hear that from each of you guys, kind of how that feels. I guess, Dr. Hunter, first from you, from a, from a gait point of view, it seems like it's just allowing the runner to capture more of that energy in the downward force and then pushing that forward. Yeah, but there's still energy lost in every foot contact. It, we don't have anything. Uh, we don't have flubber yet in shoes. Everything else <laughs> loses some of the energy that gets stored. Even the um, PBAX foam with uh, the Vaporfly, when that initially came out, we were looking at numbers like, I think, around 90% energy return. So it doesn't give more than we put into it. And... Uh, Let's see, there was, I had one other thought on that. Uh, oh, uh, one part that's interesting from our first study on these shoes was that runners that spend less time on the ground at some given speed seem to get more of a benefit of the shoe. So even if a shoe gives back, say, 90% of the energy you put into it, if it doesn't return it at the right time, you're not getting that full 90% return into the body so it, it's often not as simple as we see some number 90 percent energy return that's great it's still not a hundred percent and most people maybe all are not getting all of that 90 percent back at the right point in time interesting and i imagine that has to do with ground contact time which we know um in, in small ways can be adjusted by uh an athlete doing uh neuromuscular timing drills things like that obviously right i mean like is that, is that part of what we're talking about i mean there is a way to adapt a little bit for that that 
it, that can change with the training that a person does, the, the preferred time they'll spend on the ground for some given speed. But it's a very difficult thing to change enough to take more advantage of this shoe. Um, Got it. Yeah. Well, and I think almost maybe even the more pressing question to ask is, can we engineer a shoe that's catered towards the mechanics of certain runners as opposed to say, Hey, we have a shoe here. Now we need all runners to change their mechanics to match this shoe. We're going to have more efficient inefficiencies there. I think, I think where maybe the shoe industry is heading is, can we take an individual and can we, um, can we target them with a shoe that's going to return energy given going to return optimal energy given their gait? And, um, and can we change, how long this, these foams store energy and release it given how long someone's on the ground or, or um, you know, different questions like that. I yeah, feel no, like in a few years, we're going to see, here's the Endorphin Pro or the Vaporfly or Asics that's designed for the heel striker that's a sub three-hour marathoner. We'll have a um, midfoot strike version that's for a slower than four-hour marathon and Customization is where I feel the next area is if, if it can be afforded by companies and consumers uh, because one shoe isn't going to be the best option for every person out there. We all move differently and contact the ground differently. Yep, and that's always been the case, obviously. The notion that every runner needs a, a shoe specific for their shoe size or their foot size and shape, but also how they move, obviously, how their gait uh, pattern is and, and such. And you could have you know, two, uh, two thirty marathoners who run, uh, quite a bit differently, obviously. Um, the idea of customization is interesting. I think you're both correct. I think that, you know, it comes down to the ability to manufacture, um, at a custom level at a one-off level. But I think that, um, the notion that you could create a shoe, um, with midsole, uh, and rebound qualities that would, would basically, uh, be tuned to that runner would be amazing, obviously. Um, but the thing is with that, you'd, you'd have to almost consider two individual shoes, given that most people have at least some asymmetry, right? I mean, some, some difference, um, between their left and right, uh, unless they were a perfectly balanced runner, obviously that would, that would complicate that uh, matter even more, but it seems like that we're on that path. Um, uh, if, if, if customization becomes a real thing. Uh, Jared, maybe talk about how you felt when you first got in some of these new Saucony shoes. Obviously, um, you know, part, part of the, part of the difference is that, is that is the new foam, obviously, which is incredibly responsive. Um, but it's obviously, you know, there's been great shoes from Saucony for years. I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but obviously the Canvara, um, the ride, a lot of great shoes. It had great, great foams. This was a whole next level experience. I guess talk about your first experience in some of those prototypes. Well, I can tell you what I thought felt like was that as I ran, I might, you know, I could just kind of throw my leg out there and let it land. And I didn't have to do as much of that eccentric loading. Like I think, I think I relied on the shoe to absorb more of the force when I was landing. And you know, it kind of seems, you know, we, we talk about energy and we talk about energy return and that's not what I feel when I run in these shoes. It's not like I feel some propulsion when I step off the shoe. What I feel is when I land on the shoe, just feeling so cushioned that, um, 
that I don't have to do that eccentric work myself. And I think that's some of what makes runners feel better after these races. What's, what's helping with recovery times and, and things like that. It's just that, that, you know, our bodies adjust and, you know, when, when, uh, when our quads feel that the shoe's absorbing the energy, the quad doesn't have to absorb it. And, uh, so that's how I felt the first time. I mean, the first time I got these shoes was days before the 2018 New York city marathon. And I got, three prototypes and uh, doc and I went into the lab and uh, coach Eyestone always has us do three or four by mile at marathon pace the week of a marathon. And it's just, it's not designed to be a hard workout. It's just a workout to feel marathon pace one more time. And since I had new shoes um, and I was considering wearing them for the marathon, I thought, well, let's do this three by or four by mile workout on the treadmill this time. So we measured oxygen uptake um, to measure, you know, energy cost. And uh, I remember running in the first two pairs of shoes and, you know, felt fine in them. But, you know, nothing particularly special about the way that I felt. I ran in the shoes I was going to race in. I had planned to race in the Saucony Kimbara. And that felt normal because that was the shoe I'd done all my training in. And then I put on this last pair of shoes and I did my last mile in that pair. And as soon as the treadmill turned off at the end of that mile, I pulled off the mask and I said, doc, that's the one. And doc said, well, we'll see. And he kind of went over to the computer and we, we ran some averages and, uh, sure enough, the first two pair were about the same as that Kimvara in terms of energy cost. And this last pair was 4.4% better. Wow. Um, and I thought, well, we're going to wear that. And I emailed Saucony and I said, I think you guys should call it. It was in the area of the, you know, the Nike had their 4% shoes. I said, I think we should call it the 4.4 percenters. <laughs> and uh, Saucony Legal didn't, uh, obviously didn't uh, take to that. But, um, but really what I felt in those shoes was just more cushioning in my stride. They just felt like softer shoes, like running on pillow tops and, um, I think it helped me relax. And, uh, and so what, what you feel like running in these shoes isn't like you're running on springs. It just, it's the cushioning. And the more, the more we look at these shoes, uh, the more we feel, um, stronger and stronger that it's, it's the bigger aspect of the puzzle is the foam in these shoes, um, or the bigger piece of performance is the foam in these shoes, maybe more so than the plate. And we'll get to that in just a second. I know that uh, you guys have done a study and, and really kind of came out with conclusive results that said, yeah, it is a foam. And I think, I think the, the, the University of Colorado uh, study said similar, but, um, but let's talk about the shoes on performance. And obviously you went on to run Boston, I think the next year, uh, 2019, is that what you ran, 209, uh, 25? Correct. Yep. Yeah. So obviously um, we know, even before the Saucony shoe was launched, uh, you know, to give, to give Liz an idea, I mean, most of the shoe brands uh, waited until this year to launch their shoes, partially because they knew the World Athletics uh, – uh, regulations were coming out. And so once they were regulated around the end of January, a lot of the brands uh, came out with their shoes. And, 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 but in the meantime, obviously a lot of runners were running in the prototypes, um, including you and other Saucony runners. And so to run 209.25 is certainly a testament to a lot of things because we know the marathon is not just one thing, but certainly it's, it's, your, it's your hard training, it's your smart training, it's your dedication, um, it's your perseverance in, in the race, and certainly also the, the shoes. Um, and we've seen a lot faster times across the board. Uh, internationally from some of these faster shoes. But uh, when you finished that race in 209, I mean, you, you probably felt like, okay, this is a great accomplishment. Was it, was it on your mind that it was a lot about the shoes or was it a lot about all those variables? 
Well, certainly, it was certainly about all those variables, but the, the shoes were an aspect of that, and the shoes were a critical variable. Um, I think that, you know, I had had, uh, I had had confidence after my run in Rio when I ran 2.11.30 um, in hot, humid conditions in very traditional, if not minimalist, uh, racing flats. Um, I really felt confident even at that time, even in the, you know, in the, in the footwear that I was in, that in a better conditioned environment on a good course that I could run 209. And so I had had this number in my head for a while and, and breaking 210 and really felt like I was capable of it. Um, but when these prototypes started coming in, when the prototypes started getting better, it certainly gave me confidence to chase faster times. And, you know, and I ran ran 209 in Boston, um, starting at a pace, you know, faster than that. I was, you know, I, I faded, uh, in heartbreak Hill and, and a little bit after that. Um, and so I think the, the shoes really facilitated the performance in that I, you know, I was swinging for a time, maybe even a little bit faster than that. Um, and, uh, and I do think that the shoes and, and Boston's a tough course. It's got a lot of Hills in it. Um, and uh, the more we look at uh, the impact of these shoes, uh, it seems like, you know, they, they do help with hills, both in terms of energy cost and, and there's got to be um, there's got to be some sort of muscle breakdown, muscle fatigue, uh, kind of wear and tear that these shoes are are helping on on tough, you know, tough terrains like the Boston course. So definitely, I feel like the shoes um, played a played a significant role. Yeah. And, and obviously talking about the evolution of sports equipment, I mean, every other sport, you know, um, has had similar um, uh, advancements. Uh, you know, if you look at any sport with, you know, like golf clubs, carbon fiber shafts of golf clubs, I mean, th- th- things that are seem so commonplace now, um, it maybe just running a longer time to catch up. We, we all obviously ran a lot of runs and races through the years in traditional EVA shoes and certainly those being lighter um were, were helpful, but but necessarily you know they weren't necessarily returning much energy. But obviously, these shoes and all types and all brands with these foams and carbon fiber plates have certainly made an impact. Obviously, if you look at the high end of the the new world record at two hundred one thirty seven, and, and and obviously you know faster times across the board. Obviously, the um, the time trial that was done in Austria last year, Kachogi at one fifty nine, uh, obviously proves that, that that humans can go faster, maybe with just this added equalizer of, of equipment. But I guess, uh, Dr. Hunter, getting back to kind of your background and studying gait and such, I mean, obviously you said it's only changed the gait uh, patterns a little bit, but I guess, you know, for years we talked about, oh, can, can, can somebody run sub two hours in a marathon? And that was a pipe dream and it seemed, you know, not possible. But now it seems like the advancement has come so quickly with these shoes. Have we, have we interrupted uh, human evolution or, or running evolution with these shoes or is this just a normal kind of piece of progression that i'm not sure really how to answer that it i it's obviously caused a jump in uh times if we look at the actual world records um they've been gradually progressing well since what about uh, i guess maybe highly had that jump to what was he two twenty two fifty eight yeah, he went up to a five and then to a four. And it just kept creeping down for well before these shoes. We we do need to remember the drafting and other benefits that Kipchoge had, not, not to take away from his performance. It's amazing. But I think we need to focus on 
the actual world records and how they're changing and also what normal people are doing, like potentially uh, number using Strava data and so on, we are seeing there's some progression that seems to be due to the shoes. But that's a piece of it. Uh, I, I love uh, Kipchoge's comment. Uh, maybe one of you can help me get it in the right language. It was something like it was still my legs doing the running. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and to that point, obviously, I mean, the, the marathon is still not um, an easier task and this is not cutting corners. I don't believe And Jared, you can speak to that, but I mean, it seems like obviously this is just another element, another variable um, that, that certainly allows runners to maximize their efforts. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, I, I definitely feel that that's true. And, you know, as you look at the progression of the world record or, you know, whatever metric you want to use, it, it's been coming down for a long time, but it also, it comes down in steps. You know, if you, if you look at world records plotted, it looks a lot more like a staircase than it does like a ski slope. Right. Um, and, and I think that's because, you know, because you get an athlete like Kipchoge or, uh, Geber Selassie or Bekele or one of these athletes and you know they kind of um, they cause a mentality shift with the other athletes and um, you know raise mental sights on what's achievable but it also happens when Mondo tracks are introduced uh, over cinder tracks for the case of track times or when when shoes have breakthroughs. And, and this era is going to be a massive marathoning era um, because in a lot of ways it was a perfect storm. We have Kipchoge, who I'm prepared to argue is the greatest marathoner of all time, regardless of um, of the, the shoe uh, you know, the shoe technology breakthroughs that we've had in this era. But in addition to that, you have faster shoes and, you know, and we have Bekele coming up from, from track racing and, and offering um, competition and threats to the world record. And so we've got two guys that are racing each other at the very highest level. Um, you know, Kipchoge sixth at London just recently and it was, you know, one of his first races that he hasn't won showing the depth of, of marathoning in general right now. I think there's a lot going on right now. Um, and it is going to look like a significant, you know, we're in an era of significant marathon improvement, but I, I think, um, it's, uh, it, it's a discredit to runners like Ch Kipchoge to credit the entire jump, if you want to call it that, or step to the shoes that we're wearing because, uh, because it's also an era of incredible athletes on the world stage. I agree with that. There's also a lot more focus now on marathoning um, as opposed to track. I mean, track had a, quite a heyday um, in, in the uh, 80s and 90s, and it's not that track isn't, isn't focused on. I think certainly next year with the advance or the, the Olympic year being pushed to next year, I think there'll be more focus certainly then. But I, I do think that there's more focus on marathons right now. So to your point, I agree with that. I think that more athletes are focusing on it. There's more money behind it. There's more attention all those things. And then at the same time, you look back and, you know, um, I think Derek Clayton uh, ran the first sub 210 marathon uh, in about 67, uh, wearing a pair of, um, you know, barely there shoes. Uh, some of those old Tiger shoes, Tiger Jayhawks, or, you know, um, Anatsuka was the name of it before then, but uh, which had basically just a rubber outsole and not much cushioning at all. And so it shows that obviously uh, human beings uh, were running obviously fast marathon times um, through the years. And, and certainly to your point, I mean, yeah, there's been step downs at certain times and certainly when superior athletes have really focused on the marathon, 
like highly gibberish velocity, it certainly brought more attention and, and things to it. And I think I think each one of these things is certainly a piece. I mean, to your point, Jared, I think that as uh, as runners uh, gain uh, information about how other people are training, I think there's 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 you know there's training, there's nutrition, there's fueling, all these things kind of help push the bar forward. So it seems like obviously there's many factors, and right now we just happen to be in this this uh, revolution of shoes that is obviously making um, a big impact both um, in the races, but also commercially as well. Um, I guess from that point of view, uh, I know you guys had a report that came out this past spring or past winter about the foam. Uh, Jared, you mentioned it earlier, but but obviously that power run foam that Saucony has seems to be such a catalyst to this whole thing. I guess uh, maybe Jared, you talk about it first from Saucony point of view and, and maybe how that foam is making the difference. Obviously it is part of the plate too, but it's, it's certainly um, the foam is a big instigator. Well, yeah. And, and right now we're, um, you know, we're trying to tease out what is making shoes fast in a, um, and there's a lot of interactions going on. I think you, you probably can't have the low density foam without a plate. Um, the plate probably doesn't help the shoe as much without the shape of the shoe. Um, and you know, the foam probably doesn't provide the, uh, the cushioning and or the energy return without the shape of the shoe ready to accept that. And so there's a lot of pieces, um, to the puzzle that go together. Um, but, uh, but this, this foam is, um, is an impressive foam. It's, you know, it's lower density. And so we are, we're able to get light shoes, very, very light shoes. Um, but it's also very resilient. You know, I, we talked about Spencer White with Saucony and one thing that he just loved about this, this new foam, um, that, that Saucony using in the endorphin, uh, the endorphin pro and the endorphin speed, these racing shoes is that it's so resilient. It just lasts and lasts and lasts. And, uh, it just continues to return that energy. And, and, uh, and so one of the things that, that I guess I've been proud of as a Saucony athlete is that these shoes aren't one-time use throwaways. These are, these are performance shoes that are, um, that I, you know, compete in terms of, of energy cost savings with, um, with the best that's out there. And, uh, and I think their shelf life, um, is a lot longer than, than a lot of the other stuff we've experimented with and, and a lot of the other brands and the shoes that they're making. And so, um, so it's been fun. It's been fun to be a part of that. And it's been fun to be on the inside a little bit. And, and certainly, and obviously you've, you've run in a lot of those shoes that I mentioned before, the EVA based shoes that didn't have as much uh, energy and, or pop to them or feel to them, obviously. And there's still great shoes, obviously. Like I said, the, the Saucony Convara is still one of my favorite shoes. Um, and that, that was one of the kind of uh, real kind of head turners when the, that kind of lightweight uh, minimalist uh, era came through. And, and certainly I think we've taken things from all these shoes and all these kind of design iterations going forward to, to where we are now. But I, but I imagine it's it's got to be, you know, knowing when you started your career and when you were running in college to now, it's, it's like night and day difference. Is that right? Yeah, I would say so. It's just a, uh, it, it, uh, it just feels so different. I mean, it kind of, you know, I guess I, I, I tie back to that experience of being on the treadmill in Doc's lab. That first time I was wearing the, the first prototype that we liked of these shoes, it was just this idea that, you know, just running, running just feels a little easier in that, um, I just feel so cushioned, you know, I feel like my, my, my legs aren't having to do that work to load. And, uh, and that's the difference I feel, but I, but I echo your comments. You know, I, I train all the time in the Kimbara and I still use it on, on, um, 
long runs and workouts occasionally. And I, I think that something that we don't know about these shoes that's not often talked about is that, you know, whenever, anytime we have such a big shift in types of in, in equipment or what in this case in, in shoes, I think it's, you know, it, and it's the same thing when we had that minimalist movement, I think it's, it's dangerous to jump all in and to transition to running all of your miles in these shoes and everything, you know, and I, I think, while I'm certainly going to be racing in the endorphin pros because I, I care about the performance and I want to be in the shoe that's going to make me the fastest. Um, I'm not doing all my runs in it because I'm still not sure what running on a plated shoe is doing into my body. And, and maybe I need some, you know, some time to adjust to that. And I'm, I'm certainly running with a little bit of a different form and cadence. You know, Doc talked about how I'm on the ground a little bit longer, my stride lengths a little bit longer. And, and it, you know, 1% isn't a lot, but if you're running 100 miles a week or more, then 1% landing a little bit different could affect some things. And so I think, you know, something to be cautious about is to, uh, to never jump ship on what's been working for you. But we introduce these new things and we use them and we try to, um, you know, through experience, decide what's going to work for, for each individual athlete. Yeah, sure. I think that um, certainly what you're talking about is, is, is a real concern. I, I have heard, you know, stories, mostly conjecture about uh, athletes, you know, certainly getting injured as you would with any new shoe that came out. Certainly when the minimals boom came out, everyone ran in five fingers and that was causing a lot of injuries. And, and so uh, and certainly there's always concern when, when people make a, a big shift and go to a certain kind of shoe or certain style of equipment for anything obviously that's a big big situation and obviously we know that you know running in multiple different types of shoes during a week um to offset any of that uh repetition um is, is a good thing um maybe from a design point of view and, and a gate point of view dr hunter i know that we, we talked about the foam um and kind of how that's beneficial but people have said you know oh these are springs in their shoes and it, and it seems like it's really more of a lever i think that uh, roger cram at the university of colorado said it's, it is more of a lever um, in, in the action of the gate, it's not really a spring per se, although you could argue that, uh, at the same time, anything under your foot could be, you know, technically called a spring, whether it be EVA foam or, or cardboard for that matter. I guess from your point of view, uh, doc, uh, take us through that in terms of, I know you talked about how, how these shoes have kind of slightly changed, uh, that pattern, but, but, you know, is, is it a lever? Is it a spring? Does it matter? Um, how, how do you see it? <laughs> There's, there's at least two purposes to the carbon fiber plate. And neither of them, I believe, are springs. You are <laughs> bending the plate a little bit. If you think of the movement of your foot, you're going to be putting some, uh, how, how would we describe it? It would be getting concave relative to um, looking from the top. And then it's going to relax and go straight again if it's a straight plate. They're all a bit curved anyway. But it isn't returning energy from that loading in a way that's going to be beneficial to the running. So it, its purpose is going to be to give some integrity to all that foam. A lot of people notice how they run a U-turn in a uh, one of these new shoes and they're so high off the ground, they feel a bit unstable. And that plate in there helps with the integrity of the foam, keeping it so that you can run without wobbling and so on too much and the the more important part i think is that it makes it so your foot acts as if it's a bit longer changing that um, what we'd call mechanical advantage away from a, a short foot to having the pressure under the foot as you're towing off be drifted further forward we've we've been able to measure 
it does go anywhere from around 15 to 20 percent further forward where the toe is pushing off the ground when the shoe does not have all that flex in it. Um, then how much of a benefit does it make? I, I had a wonderful student here. She just graduated named Aubrey that finished her master's thesis looking at various levels of um, thickness on the carbon fiber. She did two layers through six layers of carbon fiber embedded into some very neutral soft shoes and only saw results of on some people around a little over 1% benefit in terms of the energy cost. Mostly it was with the plates that were around three or 4% or three or four layers of carbon fiber, but it was a pretty small benefit. And for some people there was almost no benefit. So like Jared was mentioning, I, I believe the main thing is the foam. There's a little lever system benefit that comes from the plate and then it holds that foam in a good, uh, gives integrity to the foam so that you're not collapsing the shoe and sideways or anything like that. So obviously <clears throat> these different shoes, uh, we, we know they're all slightly different. The, the curvature and the plate, the, the foams are all slightly different. Obviously, as we mentioned before, obviously how a runner interacts with those, um, both in the current shoes and probably these prototypes that are being tested, uh, certainly there, there's, still, there's still a difference between runner to runner. Obviously, we all run differently. Um, even, even runners at equal training and equal strength, obviously, are going to run differently. So it seems like there's still going to be variables out there. And so maybe to your point earlier, Jared, obviously having a level playing field of what's available is still going to allow us to have what we consider honest races. I mean, we're not going to talk about maybe doping here for a second because that's a whole different ball of wax. But I mean, obviously, knowing that everyone starts on the starting line has shoes that are similar right and then it comes down to those things i talked about before the training um you know the tenacity your 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 courage to run obviously is still going to be the biggest difference in, in a race well right and and there's always innovations that um that make uh you know these that make advantage shifts um on the start line and that's what you know that's what shoe companies are supposed to do. I mean, the shoe company is supposed to put their best athletes in, in the fastest shoes and it's supposed to create shoes that's going to make anyone from the top all the way down to any, to someone just trying to finish a race faster. That's the job of that's the innovation. And the only time when we get up in arms about it is when the change in innovation is so drastic that there's significant differences. And so what I want to see in, in this sport and, and what I think we've moved towards and will continue to converge on is that everybody is on a roughly even playing field. Now, if, if, a, if a pair of shoes is going to make someone one or two minutes faster than the person they're standing next to, that's uh, I think that's too much. If, if a pair of shoes is going to make someone you know, 10 seconds faster, you know, is, is that too much? Are we, are we willing to tolerate that in sport at the sake for the, and, and with the, I guess, at the expense of companies being able to, um, to continue to innovate and make things better. Like what's our, what's our tolerance. And, and if our tolerance is that, you know, 10 seconds on in a marathon is just too much, then we need governing bodies that step in and regulate and regulate and regulate. And when there's something new comes out, it's regulated and it's tested. And, um, but that, disincentivizes companies to make better products that everybody's going to run in. And so I think, you know, we need to decide, I guess, what our tolerance is 
and then be okay as long as you know the advantages and the shifts of advantages between the athletes and product and everything is within a tolerable range then we don't stifle innovation too much and we keep the playing fields level enough you know it's a, it's a give and take and i think um we can be at the extreme on either end of it or we can find a balance somewhere in the middle that everyone's happy with those are great points. I do. I do understand. And I do believe that the, certainly the regulations have to be consistent and fair. Um, certainly to every brand, every athlete, and also the regulation process has to be um, exacted. At, you know, to all athletes at, at every race. I mean, you can't pick and choose um, and let somebody obviously fall through the cracks because obviously that's gonna that's gonna um, cause um, uh, disruption in, in kind of the fairness of it. Um, based on all this, though, it seems like obviously we've talked about human performance and human performance has been a continual thing since the start of the marathon um, and in every other sport too. But we know that uh, people have run faster and faster uh, through the years, sometimes with new, new shoes, sometimes with the same shoes and technology. But I guess maybe each of you, maybe, maybe starting with Jared, from your point of view, I mean, obviously we've seen at least a simulated sub two hour marathon. We've seen the world record go down. We've seen everyone's times, including your own, get faster with these new shoes, I guess. Uh, where is that headed? I mean, it, it, it seems like we're at a great, great period of, of obviously the marathon um, where we see human uh, performance and uh, uh, shoe performance and, and shoe evolution kind of kind of really going off together. Uh, where, where do you see the marathon going, I guess, time-wise in the next several years? Since, since we're already past the conversation of is two hours possible, we know it's possible. Well, yeah, I think that uh, as, you know, we're, we're in a very new phase of um, – of the running shoe industry being flipped on its side in terms of innovation and performance. And so, you know, we, we've seen in the last five years, um, you know, shoes making a difference in, uh, in metabolic costs somewhere between three and 6%. And most shoe companies are on their, you know, first or second or maybe third kind of run of shoes, um, built within the regulations that world athletics has set and so i think we have a few more years of shoes getting a little bit better as we continue to play with you know play with the foam and the shape and the plate and maybe there's another aspect of of um of aerodynamics or something to shoes that's going to make a difference or um you know a drastic change to shape that's going to change energy return or things like that and so i i think that uh, you know everyone's working on this problem right now and um and trying to be competitive at at putting out shoes that are going to make people run fast and we've only been into it five years so i think we have a few more years um of of uh shoes getting faster and of athletes um, responding to uh, breakthrough runners like Kipchoge. I mean, I think what you see when you have uh, uh, a Bekele or a Geber Selassie come through is they break the world record and they're the best. And then for a few years, the, the average still continues to improve, you know, until someone else breaks the world record. But even before another world record is broken, the masses or the the average professional runner or whoever is is improving because things just got faster and there was a mental barrier lifted when someone runs faster so now there's athletes that are starting in the marathon or that are in the marathon and they're looking at two hours very differently than we did a while back and so i think there's a mental breakthrough that's happened and we're on the fringe of a footwear breakthrough that's happening and, and i think that we're going to see improvements for another 
another few years? Are we going to see someone run faster than Kipchoge in the next five years or 10 years? I don't know. You know, I, I kind of, my, my hunch is that um, Kipchoge uh, is, is setting a standard as the best marathoner ever. And, and maybe he's not quite done setting that standard yet. And for a while as a world, we chase that mark and footwear gets us a little closer and, you know, lack of mental barrier gets us a little bit closer. And then we wait for the next Kipchoge that uh, has another significant breakthrough. Um, but I, I, I think that we're, we're kind of early in this phase of breakthroughs, and I think we'll see a few more. Yeah, all excellent points. I, I tend to agree. I think that certainly there's been a lot of factors that have you know kind of contributed to all this. I do think that Kipchoge is uh, one of those once-in-a-generation runners, and, and certainly – uh, worthy of being called uh, the greatest marathoner of all time. Um, at the same time, we know that like through human evolution, there's athletes that come up all over the world and um, kind of appear somewhat out of nowhere or appear on the horizon. And then, you know, certainly all of a sudden we're looking at them and that's, that's true in other sports as well. But I think it's a very exciting time to be in running and to be in the running shoe world and to be kind of involved with these different levels. Obviously, Jared, you with um, both your interest in development issues, but also as an athlete. And then Dr. Hunter, obviously you're, kind of your, as you said, your, your, yourself, uh, yourself shift of, of kind of certainly understanding kind of, um, uh, gate, but also understanding kind of performance and how some of these new, new shoes are, are, are making things change. I guess, Dr. Hunter, from your point of view though, in human evolution, you know, we've seen, you know, again, even through the last hundred years, uh, you know, whether it be the hundred meters or, or high jump or the marathon, obviously, uh, there is an intrinsic, um, kind of quests in, in the human spirit to want to go faster and bigger and better, farther, more. It seems like that is is a nonstop element, right? And I mean, even if we think, oh, there's no way someone can run that much faster in 100, but then somebody does. And same with the mile right. or the marathon. I guess from your point of view, combined with a catalyst like this, it seems like, yeah, we're, as Jared said, we're in a place where we're going to see this continue, um, you know, if not only indefinitely, but certainly in the next coming years. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I, I like to think of it similar to how the four-minute mile went down. You know, it, it sat there at four hundred one for however many years, nine or ten years or something, and then all of a sudden, Roger does it, and now multiple people get it, and shortly after, it's down to three fifty-four. So, I, I really believe it's more of a psychological uh, change that's going on here. Once someone knows, oh, it is possible to break two hours, uh, then there's going to be people out there believing it. And we've got some late teenagers and early 20-year-olds that have their sights set on that and are believing they're going to be the one that does it. So it it's what Kipchoge has done and others has really sped up the belief that people can do it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the factors we've talked about with footwear, um, conditioning of the body, nutrition, all those things matter. Um, but I, I believe it's more of a belief in the human spirit within oneself that is going to make it so we see this continued progression growing on. I, I don't think there's a rapid enough evolution of DNA and so on that 20 years is going to make a meaningful difference on anything with the capacity and potentials that a human body has, but partly the technology, partly some things with nutrition, perhaps. Uh, But then that sports psychology part is a factor that I think often gets overlooked as one of the more meaningful ones. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, obviously, as human beings, we've been running probably with the same gait for for millions of years, obviously, and, and the, the, those basic movements of running haven't changed, even though we've become, you know, uh, shod runners and, and certainly more sophisticatedly shod runners. But um, but it hasn't really changed the actual movements of running. And as you even said earlier, there are you know one percent, two percent differences in some of the, the qualities of the gait. Um, maybe we'll end with this, uh, Jared. Obviously, we talked about it at the beginning. You have been an elite marathoner for years. And in 2016, you ran a really strong Olympic trials and uh, Olympic race and in and, and what you were uh, previously wearing, a, a, a kind of a shoe with an EVA foam. And now you have these advanced foams and these advanced shoes from Saucony at your disposal. You've run fast in them and you run well in them. I'm sure you, you're probably running in new prototypes that will come out next year, which is always exciting for for all of us, for the industry, for runners, for marathoners, for shoe geeks like me. Um, but I guess from your point of view, have you really changed um, in the last four years as a marathon, I'm sure you've evolved, but, but have, have the shoes changed kind of your approach or your training, um, I guess, in any dramatic ways or, or is it still, you know, again, about the hard work, um, the long miles, the, the, the month long buildup to get to that race and then having it execute on a race day. It seems like the marathon is still the same. It seems like, you know, from what I know about you, a lot of it's still the same in, in, your, in your dedication. But maybe talk about that and it, it, as a way to summarize here, because I think that uh, certainly the shoes are part of it. But I think it, you know, might we might be still um, at the same qualities of what a marathon is. Well, I tried to test in uh, the London Marathon a few weeks ago if the shoes were magical enough to <laughs> turn a seven-week buildup into a full, you know, twelve or sixteen-week buildup, and I found that they're not quite that magical. So I, uh, I, I've been, um, joking that if, uh, if a marathon build in seven weeks works, I'm never doing a 12 or 16 week build again. Um, and it didn't work quite how I had hoped. And so, uh, so, no, you know, I, I think so much of it stays the same. Um, now things that are different, I think that, um, as I've been getting older, I can't quite handle the same volume or at least couldn't quite handle the same volume as I had maybe five or six years ago or even four years ago. Um, and I think that, uh, these, these new shoes running more miles in, in the endorphin and, and these foams, um, is helping me helping compensate for that. Like I, I'm able to run, uh, close to the same volume that I was running years ago. And, and as I've transitioned more to, more and more to these shoes, I'm able to handle more and more volume. So I, I think that um, there are transitions like that when, when we have products that are stressing our body a little bit less, um, we can handle a little bit more race-specific training, and I think that's only going to help. Um, so there are things like that that do shift and uh, that, that footwear causes to shift, but you know it's still um, it's still a marathon build and it's it's uh, it's still getting my VO2 max high and it's still getting my lactate threshold um, at a at a high level and or at a high velocity and and that's uh, that's all done through stressing your body the same way. So maybe the shoes allow me to stress my body a little bit faster. Um, but it's the same grind that we get to go through prepping for these marathons. Well, that's a good uh, good way to summarize, a good way to wrap up here. Obviously, it's uh, it's still about the hard work. You still got to lace them up, and you still got to show up on race day. So, uh, Jared Ward, uh, elite runner with Saucony, and Dr. Ian Hunter, professor at uh, Brigham Young University, thank you very much. It's been fun talking uh, modern running shoes with you guys. Thank you. It was really good to visit with you. Yeah, this was fun, Brian. Thank you for listening to this episode of Kixology. 
Thank you to Saucony professional runner Jared Ward and Dr. Ian Hunter from BYU for their insightful and thoughtful conversation. Please tune in each week as I talk about all things running shoes, from breakthrough innovations to historic fails to bestsellers of the past and present, plus a look at what's coming in the future. Also, be sure to pick up a copy of my book, Kixology, The Hype, Science, Culture, and Cool of Running Shoes. 